Very good to see you, David. Very good to see you, Tim. How are you? I'm doing well. It's, you know, well, it's a good question, you know. <laughs> How is everybody doing? Yeah. Yeah. You know, like our lives have been turned around 180 degrees, right? Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, it's been, actually, maybe it's, maybe it's a good thing. I mean, it's not a good thing, obviously. It's not a good thing to have a pandemic and everyone being ill, but actually the... Um, uh, it's fascinating, isn't it, when you actually press stop on everything? Yeah, yeah. And some some of it's terrible, and some of it you think, oh, actually, it's fascinating because you uh, normally you carry on tomorrow doing the same thing because you because you can or you. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's it's been interesting. It's uh, like everybody else. I'm keen to keen to get back to doing some of what, some of what we were doing before. You see, like I think part of the question really is: Is it really a stop on on uh, you know on everything? I don't think that's the case. It's it's some like the it's the world where people meet up that has been really? stopped. No, I and mean, it's been a it's been a start on some things. I mean, I've done uh, funny. You know, you've had all the people. Well, you've had the people doing strange things in lockdown. Robert and Toya. You know, yeah. I've created an alternative world in lockdown. Mm -hmm. um, actually, on we did music for quiet moments, which I don't think we would have done. I don't know if you followed those. You know, we've been putting up a soundscape every week, mm -hmm. um, a contemplative piece, because that felt appropriate. Um, I've started playing bridge with my father every weekend, <laughs> which I and it's wonderful. Actually, I see more in a funny way. I spent more time with my father this year, not physically, obviously, but. Yeah. Than, than ever before. Yeah, yeah. We could always we could always have done it, but some none of us can go anywhere. We all get together online and you know to, on the weekend. So it's been. Um, I assumed it would be a wonderful creative space, and that's the only thing it hasn't been. I assumed that because the world was pausing, you know, I'm, I'm trying to write another album, a book, and today we're going to have time to do these things, and actually. If anything, there seems to be more. You have to work harder to achieve less. I think it yes. might. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for, for me, the first maybe six months were maybe still kind of like okay creatively, because it was the mm -hmm. summer, right? And and there was some some good energy there somehow. And uh, the first attempts at trying something different and something new, and it was exciting. Um, but then as the winter came, uh, things really started to, to become very repetitive and, and it, it would became apparent that, um, like an al alternative path may not be, um, sustainable for a, a very long time. And like a year now, yes. almost kind of like feels it's a very long time, you know, so and I just just wrote uh, in a in a private group on Facebook today. I wrote that I'm actually uh, uh, well. I didn't say really say that my career is over, but it it really the the, the fact that I'm forced to be doing something uh, completely different uh, is kind of like puts me on a different path. And I really don't know if I can, and how I can return. You know, mm -hmm. especially when when it comes to um, yeah, well, to 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 uh, feeding my family, right? Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, and so it's it's really very 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 complex situation. And I remember the the last time I saw you very very briefly was um, one and a half years ago in Berlin at the King Crimson show, and you walked past, and I think it was the first time I saw you with a beard. Is <laughs> yep, it was still there this morning. It comes and goes my beard until it lasts until my wife suggests that I should lose it. <laughs> Hey, so so the um, I, you know I had you on my list um, of of people I wanted to talk to anyway, but then last week, actually on April first, uh, you made a. <laughs> I realized how suitable April first. Was that was that intentional? No, it was it was uh, if if you mean the blog post, it was written absolutely simply because I I I played the prelude number one. I mean that's my. My the, the only thing I have achieved in lockdown actually is that I have found time to go and play the piano, mm -hmm. um, and which is a uh, I don't know how many people listening are musicians, but anyway, it, it's astonishing. You, know, you 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 put up I don't know the first part of Moonlight Sonata or something, and then there you are communing with Beethoven, and you start by thinking, well, there's all the bits you know, and you get into the subtlety of it and the changes and the it's astonishing. So I've been working my way through various pieces. I've done some Sarti pieces and Beethoven pieces. And um, I was thinking, well, what should I play next? And I, I'm not quite sure how I liked it on it, actually, but I, I was going to, oh, you know, prelude number one would be interesting to play. And um, I'm, not, I'm an atrocious sight reader, I would, I would think normally. I would regard myself as an atrocious sight reader. Sight reader. And I sat down and pretty much played it faultlessly off the page the first time through. I just, because your fingers can't help but play it. Mm -hmm. it's, music that, it's music that already exists somehow. The only way I can explain it, it's faultless, it exists. Um, I explained this to my, uh, to my daughter who said, well, perhaps you wrote it in an, al in an alternative life or a previous life. And I said, well, no, I don't, I don't think I would bark in an alternative life, but it is... It's just one of those inevitably beautiful pieces of music. How could it not exist? And um, and it was really, it struck me after I played it. I whatever for whatever reason I thought it is when you when you are physically playing a piece of music like that, the notion of ownership of music, it doesn't seem wrong. It just seems absurd or pointless or irrelevant. Hence, hence the blog post. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. It's uh, it's it's a ver very interesting, uh, you know, like because on on one level I obviously totally agree with you, but then also it's sort of like a, uh, uh, it's a fact that there is like one person or a group of people that bring pieces of art into this world, and even though it may already be there somewhere, it will it gets I don't know it gets transcribed in some way, right? And and that's that's kind of the part where where the ownership then uh, has been assigned. It wasn't. It, it's. I, th I think that I haven't really thought, continued to think of it greatly. I was going to take this opportunity talking to you to sort of delve more into what it might mean because it's not. Um, it's the terminology that's difficult. Obviously, I, as I wrote in the blog, I think I'm not in any way trying to you know, demean Bach's genius by saying he didn't write it. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, the, how the process of writing happens is actually slightly outside of this. Whether people write the music or the music writes the person, 
but there are, you know, peculiar people of whom they're, you know, there are a limited number, I suppose, if you really go to the people who've written the core catalogue that we know and love. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not, it's, I don't know, maybe a hundred, but it's not as many as you'd think it would be, I suppose. But the, um, so there are people who are transcendent and can tune into music and music flows out of them and there it is. And I'm not trying to say that their names shouldn't be at the bottom of the piece of paper, nor in fact that they don't deserve to be hugely wealthy because what they're doing, you know, is enormous. So, so I'm not saying they shouldn't be able to make a living. I'm not saying their names should not have been on it. In fact, it's not, it's not that at all. It's, it's partly when you sit in a world that I, I half sit in and wish I didn't, which is the, you know, the corporate world. You, that's when the word ownership starts becoming, can become complicated. So you, so it's not that Bach didn't write it or that it should be attributed to him or that we shouldn't revere him for so doing. It's, and in the case of Bach, it's now fine, actually, because um, it's long enough ago that his pieces of music don't exist in the corporate jungle. But um, there is a danger that this notion of ownership, as in a corporation, particularly when it's a corporation rather than a person, I think, you know, you a third of the music made by the world now is pretty much owned by a part of Universal. Um, when they own it, because there's a tendency that it gets frozen in time. I think that's my, that's, I think the danger. Cause I think partly, you know, when you play Bach, I can remember, you know, the opening chords are what C major, D minor, G major, or G seventh back to the C. There you go. Those are the opening three. And I'm sure he wasn't the first person who'd ever put those three chords together, you know? Um, uh, and so all of us are building, everybody is building on a building block that already exists. Mm-hmm. That's what we all do. I mean, I'm a, you know, uh, I think in my core, I would regard myself as a songwriter. And if you're a serious songwriter, well, at some point or other, you know, I dissected, you know, how does McCartney write songs? How does Lennon write songs? How did Paul Simon write songs? And you don't then set out to plagiarize them, but actually there are probably 10 songwriters who I've sort of assimilated their DNA because I love what they write and I know how they write it. Mm-hmm. You know, and hopefully... I will write something that's me, but I'd be stupid if I denied I'm not building on their, on building blocks that existed. I'm not, you know, uh, and often when you hit a court, you, you know where you've heard it before. So I think music is a living, breathing thing that moves forward. And there is a danger that you get into this where you can't do that. You know, those, those three chords are this, they're owned by, they're owned by that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and it, I put, it, it, if you took that really, really seriously, it'd be almost impossible to write a piece of music because actually most things when you hear them, you think, oh, it's a little bit like this or it's a little bit like this. And when is something a little bit like this? And when is it a lot like this? And when it, who's, um, so, so I think, I think fundamentally there's an issue with that and that there's a bit of me that thinks that music Music should be free. Mm-hmm. I say this as a person who makes a living out of selling music. That <laughs> <laughs> um, um, in, in its essence, music is like the air, you know, for people who love music, it's like the air we breathe, isn't it? So I mean, music is part of, part of the world. So um, I, think, I think it's right that people should be able to earn a living. And 
I said it, it was particularly when I struck that piece. I just I listened that I played that piece of music and I thought the notion of somebody should own this is very odd to me. Does that does that move us a step forward? Uh, it 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 does. I think I think it's kind of uh, the 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 this, the model of patronage kind of like is returning and has always been around in the arts. And I wonder. Um, in the times of Bach, what his situation was like, you know, maybe people probably didn't pay him for each individual piece, but there were people that knew of his genius and supported him so that he could write those pieces. And yes, I mean, I'm and the music is free, right? The music still kind of in that. In those days, I wrote, I wrote in history, I suspect the music was free and the musician was paid. Was, was the way it used to work. I'm not saying that's a better model, but I imagine that's where it was. So I think, you know, Bach would have been paid to write a piece of music for church this Sunday, which he wrote and played, mm -hmm. and the score would have existed. I don't know that he would have been paid again if somebody else then took that score and played it again the following week somewhere else in the same way. Yeah, you know, I don't know if that would have happened. Mm -hmm. But, um, so no, I think, I think there was a, a patronage model, which which is one of the models which sort of the internet has actually already partly converged back with. Because I know with new artists, it's very difficult to support yourself, you know, selling music on the old model. And I think when you go to some of these um, uh, Kickstarter things and those types of things, a lot of people actually are willing to put up money that isn't really buying something. They're putting up money to support something that they would like to exist. Yeah. They're effectively supporting something. Um, so, so, I mean, patronage remains a model. Um, I'm not averse to selling stuff. I mean, I suppose the, you know, the, the core part of DGM these days is actually selling beautiful things. Mm -hmm. And actually, I think when you have that, that's a slightly different issue. But I, I, because I realize I, I put behind me for you, there, especially for you, I sat here. This is where I sat when I played it. And there is prelude number one. That's half. That's the three half. Sitting here, we can't see it actually. Sitting there is a king box set. There's the, there's the other half. Of the, there's, so there's the, the argument sitting behind me. So the, um, and I think if you make beautiful things and people want to buy them, that remains perfectly valid. Mm -hmm. I think the uh, King Crimson is in a very lucky part of the market in that it has fans who would like to buy beautiful things mm -hmm. and, and therefore support it. So um, the, real, the real dilemma about all of this is in fact in with younger, mus younger musicians and starting musicians, because if, if, if Spotify is the future, yeah, um, you, know, you, you, you used to be able to make a living probably in fact out of selling 1,000, 10,000 CDs, you could have made a, you know, you could have made a living. Now, so let's assume that's 10,000 people and they listen to your music on Spotify, you know, you're, you can barely buy a cup of coffee. Yeah. So, so there, is a, there is a huge dilemma coming up about how, how that works and therefore how the musician gets paid. And, um, and, and there, are, there are lots of well-meaning steps that get taken and all they seem to do is go back in a circle, back into the same corporate mess. 
um, I'm going off a tangent here. You drag me back to the middle, by the way, if I wander off. But anyway, the, um, so for example, um, when they lengthened copyright recently for the rec record label, so it used, copyright was going to end after 50 years and extended, I think, to 70 years now. And part of the deal was that in the extension, if you've got a record that's over 50 years old, you now have to give some money to PRS or PPL, one or the other, um, who, who gives it to the session musicians who played on the sessions. So effectively, some of the money now um, will, go, will go to the, to the session musicians who played on things. And that's well-meaning and right that you know if, if, if we're going to carry on making money out of recording it's perfectly right that people who played on it should get paid except that in practice it will almost certainly fail because nobody knows who they were and actually and if you and having tried it with robert when we were trying to prove that robert played on records you know if i can't prove that robert frick played on a record if i happen to be the i don't know the third trombone player playing on a Beatles record, who is going to believe me, mm -hmm. bluntly? No, so, because, because I know the first thing that happens when you, when you do any of these things with these organizations is they say, prove it. Well, you know, because it wasn't a thing at the time, how many people really know and can prove 50 years ago that they played on a session? I mean, even, even the major players, you, you, I was talking to, I talked to John Paul Jones about this, Mel Collins about this, they don't even remember what they played on. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, John Paul Jones will tell you, you know, he was a, when he was a bass player for hire, he'd play on about three, two or three records a day. He'd be doing one and there'd be a cab waiting outside the studio for him to take his bass out of the studio, hop in the cab, go on to the next one to play on another thing. Mm -hmm. And likewise, likewise. So, and these were, these guys were the major players. Yeah. So if nobody's sure what they played on. So, so, so ironically, what, what all this does, which is I think my problem with ownership in a funny way, is it doesn't in most of this money doesn't percolate back to the people who needed it, i.e. the musicians. What actually happens is money gets collected by PRS and P or PPL. This fund gets collected, and it doesn't get distributed to the right people because nobody knows who they were. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it hasn't sold. Well, if, if if we look forward to you, I don't know. You know, if you, if, if we went forward and you've been a gigging player and you played on things, it's it might work going forward. So in 50 years time because people might now be thinking oh we need to take keep a record of this but when they when they do these things retrospectively which is exactly what happened with the uh, the robert Fripp thing about him playing on heroes mm -hmm. you know they, they much later than that they created the featured players uh, criteria on a record that if you're featured on a record you get some money and um by any modern criteria given what david bowie himself said what brian eno has said in writing what um, Tony Visconti has said in writing, by any of those criteria, Robert would, would be what is now deemed to be a featured player. But it didn't say so on the record because at the time nobody used the word because the position didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And so if you take our position, which is we've been trying to solve that problem and you can't, they basically say, and you think, well, why did you bother to backdate it? So you backdated it. <laughs> you backdated this thing to cover featured players at the time. Robert would have been a feature player. Ironically, if you're the singer, they will accept it. So if you're the singer on the record, mm. um, they, will, uh, they will say, oh, you can say, oh, I was the singer. They'll say, okay, you count as a feature player. But if you happen to be a, a, an instrumentalist, 
whose iconic voice is, 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 you know, is a guitar, for example, not a voice, they won't accept it. And I'm not saying it's, you know, I, I think it is wrong. And, but it's just another example of the fact they create these criteria. And in fact, all that really happens is they're cycling music money back into a black box that yeah. disappears and we'll call the music, the music industry. You know, like I have an idea or I would even say like a theory about what is kind of like the underlying problem, but maybe also the underlying beautiful thing about this problem. Um, it's that people who are creative and in the, in the most real way, like you create, you create materials that contribute to the world, right? You create things that other people consume. Yep. Um, you actually are, you feel some sort of responsibility for your own world. So you're kind of creating that fantasy world around yourself. So that also means that, say, the beings on the other end that don't just that have a different different job in this in this mm. world, they sort of like have a certain kind of um, power over the others because they they know that the artist is gonna is happy anyway. The, the mm. artist is happy with with a little bit of money. Like we we keep the rest. Right, and it's it's true because like the the the, the musician is is self-contained, right? Ideally, let's say like and happy because you have something that you can contribute to the world. You have the 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 tools to build that that uh, pink castle around you, right? Like in a way, and I think that's a contributing factor to why things have come the way uh, have come the way they've they've come and. And we, well, we know all know the example of like the first recorded voice where I don't know a lady or a guy, you know, got paid yep. ten ten bucks, and then they made like fifty thousand copies of it, right? So I don't know, but and that's that's the beginning. That's the beginning of that. Uh, and you you know so so much about this. I'm I'm actually a little bit surprised to be honest, and I mean this in the best possible way, that even after thirty years of of um, dealing with this absurdity, mm. um, you you sort of like it's still something that touches you so deeply, you know. Well, the, it's I suppose my my entire life is split, and I live I live that absurdity on a daily basis. <laughs> I had uh, because the uh, half of my life, what fortunately, is musical. And you're right that musicians create music. They have to create music. Mm -hmm. In fact, you can't stop them creating music. I, Robert, I think, often refers to it being a bit slightly like a, a mother who has to give birth. A musician has to create, a, mu a true musician has to create music. Yeah. So, um, and there is a reward and a wonderfulness for doing it. And it is, uh, it is its own reward. Mm -hmm. uh, provided it has an audience, I think probably I, I think it's probably heartbreaking to create music without an audience. But a musician who has an audience is is in a sense satisfied. Um, so, and that's wonderful, and that's the that's the happy part of the world. And the other half of my world is is dealing with 
what it, what it means to bring that into the world, both from our perspective, which is relatively benign, in fact, mm -hmm. but also where it crosses over into relationships with the mega music corporations. Yeah. So the, um, uh, and two thirds of that model now is quite happy. I mean, I'm fortunate in, very fortunate in the musicians I work with. We've, we have found a way of placing our music into the world where everyone is rewarded handsomely for what they do, which now I think works very well. So when that's happening, you think, oh, this is a, this is a happy model. Um, and then, you know, once every six months or whatever, you, <laughs> you, you, you hit the snag that is the mainstream music industry, which really is an industry. And um, I, it's not my job, I suppose, to belittle it for being that. It is, it is just different. In other words, the music business is business. It is, it's business exploiting music that is what it is and, and um i suspect the the people working on the higher echelons of it know that's what they do mm -hmm. you know they're, they're not um they are simply in the business of music and the way they make money is by monetizing music in the same way that somebody who's got a lot of coal well what i do is i get maximum bucks for my coal and you know a minimum cost and to some extent i think the music industry does that we get maximum bucks for our music at minimum cost and the minimum cost means keeping those musicians happy by paying them just enough that, they, that they'll carry on doing what they do without bothering us too much i think um and yes and, and there is a there is an inherent there's an inherent dis, disconnect disconnect there okay. and um you're right it's still and it still, it, it still bothers me. Yes, it does still bother me. <laughs> yeah. But you see, in a way, what you're, what you're saying is, or one conclusion could be that if you, if you have no contact with the music business, you are much better off as a musician, even financially. Oh. And, and, I, would, and I would say that that is, is the, the, the case for me, right? And, and there, there's like something like I have to... I have to say thank you to you and Robert for for starting DGM uh, back then, and and sort of like setting an example for how things can be, and uh, and Robert like insisting that I should not go study music uh, at conservatory and stuff. So it was it was all it was all great, and I think um, it's still my you know the first record deal I had with my with my friend Ian Body was we'll split fifty fifty. That well, that's the deal. The handshake yeah. and it's still still good till this day and um it's wonderful so i i'm grateful that i never had any kind of uh mainstream success um it's somehow it somehow enables me to communicate differently with people and to actually see my the, the fans as friends and uh it's really it's really a different world if you've if you've never really been in touch with the with the old model, let's say. The, the, the old model can have value. And I used to be, so I used to think that the, perhaps I still, I still think really that the music industry is probably undervalued, mm -hmm. ironically, and it's undervalued because it sees itself wrongly. Mm -hmm. So um, I can remember being utterly surprised in, it was in the early day, early 2000s when Microsoft was trying desperately hard to do a deal with EMI to move their streaming platform forward. And 
somebody at one of the meetings mentioned the market cap of EMI at the time, which was tiny. The value of EMI was tiny. And the person at Microsoft said, well, why instead of having got conversations with them, why don't we just buy them? Because they're not, they, they, this company is not worth anything, relatively, compared to, compared to us. And it's still true, I think, if you looked at, you know, whatever price is, it's been sold this year, if I, I think it's on the, but um, whatever price is put on Universal, I suspect would still, would still, in a sense, seem very low, Mm-hmm. despite the fact it owns a third of the music ever recorded. Mm-hmm. I think, and I think the reason for that is that they see their value wrongly. They think their value is what they own. They are obsessed. It comes back to the absurdity of ownership. They think that their value of uh, Universal is in the music they own, and they own it and we will exploit it. They want to own it for that reason. And in fact, I think the, the value of Universal, I, would, I personally would contend, is really a that of an advertising agency mm-hmm. who actually doesn't necessarily own anything at all if you want to look at it that way and if i was talking to you about you know should you do a deal with the devil as in if you're a young musician should you go off to universal music and sign there sign on the dotted line there is only one reason why i think you would do it and that's if you believe that the advertising agency is worth the price mm-hmm. in other words if you believe that universal is going to help you to, to, to a larger market and you want that market. Mm-hmm. You won't necessarily be richer for doing it unless you become a megastar, you won't be richer for doing it. But if you believe you know, that there, there, is a, um, there is something those labels can do that very rarely happens outside of them when they take people from a sort of local or medium-sized success to a much larger success. And which, which is really nothing to do with ownership. And I, I'd say it's entirely to do with really marketing cloud. Marketing, and I don't mean marketing necessarily as adverts, but just simply in, you know, in being able to put your face in the right places and get you the right contact. So they do have a value if that's what you want. And if that isn't what you want, or if but, you can... But, really David, but David, is, can the, the company as such actually uh, deliver that I don't think so. It's got to be the people that work for the company that have the relationship with the artist and sympathize with the artist. Yes. I'm, I'm, but I'm taking, I'm taking the company as a whole as a thing. It, it, you're right, it is the people. We can, we can get onto that in a minute. Yeah, yeah. If, if you are, for any, other, for any other reason, if you're a musician, you should keep away from the music industry. I mean, the advice you were given remains, I think, sound. But in fact, there is, if you're going to sell reasonably small numbers of records, there's far more money to be made by doing it yourself, for a start. You connect with your fans differently by doing it yourself. Your your music can possibly be more true by doing it yourself because there's no constraints placed upon you about where you should go. If, you know, if the next album you want to make is nothing like the previous one you made, well, there you are, you're free to do it. You, 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 have, you have the musical freedom to do it. So the, there are a lot of reasons why, why it's good to sit outside it. Um, in fact, the, the, the early model of King Crimson probably is one of the best examples of coexistence, in fact, because, of course, it, you know, they were the... It was them and them two managers were... King Crimson EG, that was it. They, they, you know, it was, it was a, a shared split between them and their managers, and they then licensed the album to two larger labels, Island and Atlantic. 
which were then not as large as anything that's around now, but you know, they, they were those labels who then took it into the world. So, so you, there are ways of dealing with this monster, but yes, going off and signing your soul to a, a major label remains probably a problem. And coming back to your thing about people, the other problem is you're quite right that it remains, it's a, it's a tangible relationship. And the number of stories you hear about people who were signed to a label by somebody who liked them and understood that music. And then that somebody leaves and now the person remains signed and owned by this label, but now has no interest in them at all. And nobody there understands why, who they are and what they are. Mm -hmm. It's a, uh, um, uh, and your own, and yes, and if you signed on the dotted line, they now own your music. Da -dum, da -dum, back to where we started. Yes. <laughs> but, um, yeah. yeah. So, so, um, <clears throat> which which alternative is there, like to ownership, to the idea of ownership? Well, I don't know. I, I'm not yet signed up. I know there's been you know various free music things and. I, I think we do sit in a world of um, of ownership, and when it's when it's at the artist level, I think it works fine. That really, because when it's at the artist level, it's really not that different to to me saying, "Well, I'm, I'm, of course, the piece of music sitting beside me should say it was written by Bach, and he should get the credit for writing it." Mm -hmm. You know, and if there's any money to be had for it being played due to the composer, he should have it. I'm not in any way trying to demean Bar. And so if you took, um, well, actually, they didn't ask about the second album, but I was, I was asked the other day about the first Europa String Choir album mm -hmm. um, because they want to add it to Bandcamp, I think. Yeah. And um, Udo wrote to ask and said, well, can we do this? And, you know, is there a problem? What, what, what's the situation with this music? And it's very simple. I said, well, actually, you own it, Udo. Mm. You own it. You're the artist. You own it. So if you want to put it on Bandcamp, you should go and put it on Bandcamp. And um, I think nominally, I would have earned, because I produced it, would have earned a bit of money. And I think Robert would have earned a bit of money, both of which we were very happy to let go at present, as I doubt Bandcamp is going to be paying fortunes. But at the simple level, it, it works very well. They own that music. And even if we get into the where I started this from, uh, the notion of infringement and people building on music written by other people, I think artists have a very fairly accurate sense of what's fair. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you've written a piece of music and, I don't know, some other CD comes out, I think artists tend to know whether what they're listening to is a development from their music, is a perfectly fair musical development from, you know, moving forward and effectively another bricklayer being laid on top of what they did, as opposed to, hold on, that note for note is the piece that I wrote and that's, uh, you know, they, they've simply taken this score written by Bach and written their name, crossed my name out and written their name on the top and that's an infringement. So I think that um, when it's at an artist level, in a funny way, ownership works perfectly well as an idea. It's when you, it's really when it becomes, you know, mega corporations and mega corporations come with gazillions of contracts and they come with lots and lots of lawyers. And those layers, by their nature, are not musical. Yeah. 
So the lawyer that is now discussing whether or not this piece of music written by Marcus Reuter is a, you know, is an infringement or not, or what we should do with it, you know, he, he may he may he may have joined that because he loved music. I'm not demeaning the lawyers, but in the end, their, their job is to be a lawyer. They're not a musician who happens to own something. Their job is to be a lawyer, and more, more than that, their job is to maximise the profits for the corporation they work for. So it doesn't even come down necessarily to a question of what's fair, as in, do you really think this piece of music was developed? Actually, you, it comes down to, do I think I can get away with it? And with legally, do I think I can do this? Mm -hmm. Which isn't the same as, is it morally right to do it? And, mm -hmm. and it's, and I'm, in a way, I'm not trying to be hypercritical of that situation. It's just a difference. You, you've imposed a set of rules that would apply perfectly well, you know, in other, in all the other facets of industry. It's exactly the same system. But when applied to, when applied to music, it does, then you do end up in some odd oddities, I think. Mm -hmm. so, uh so, so may I ask you other other actual um, examples um, in in your life as a music manager, like a current situation where there's a question about ownership that you could? Uh, I mean, we we are, um, <laughs> but there, there probably isn't a moment when we're not in dispute with somebody. I don't, probably shouldn't tell you the latest one, but, but yes, we're we're always in dispute with somebody. It would be um, would be good to just have like one example, just to see what. I mean, because people uh, people use things. I mean, if you go back, um, which is sort of a slightly live issue. I mean, you've got you know when uh, when twenty first century schizo man cropped up on Power by Kanye West, mm -hmm. you know, without yeah. us being asked. Uh, like, do you know? I assume you know. Do you know the history of this? I mean, so so um, it's now. Happened in 2010, I think now. But you know, there was this new piece by Kanye released on on, U on YouTube. There was his new song "Power," mm. you know, which has the chorus "21st Century Schizo Man" by King Crimson in it. Mm -hmm. And we had never been asked, we had never been told, we knew nothing about it. Mm -hmm. And um, that's when, to me, ownership is perfectly appropriate because if Kanye and his record label are planning to make money out of this, which they undoubtedly are. Um, then it's right and proper that King Crimson should get their fair share of it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, so we met, so we met with Kanye, we met with their lawyers, their lawyers came over and originally said, well, it's a minor piece, you know, we'll give you a couple of 10 cents here or $10,000 here or whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, I think we told them, we said, well, there is a precedent for people using un um, samples without permission, which is I think unfinished symphony by the rolling, you know, with the rolling stones and the, the precedent is we'll take it all. Perhaps you'd like to go, go out of the room and come back and be nice to us instead of trying to be so <laughs> bull. Um, and, um, they then said, uh, we'll, well, we'll take the sample out. That was their next step. And we pointed out, well, you'll have two problems. Then the first problem is that you've already released it. So we'll still sue you because you can't unrelease it. It's been, you know, you, you put it on YouTube already, you released it. And secondly, even if you released a subsequent version that didn't have our sample in, we would sue you over the publishing because you can tell that the cadence of the verse is deliberately intended to arrive at, at our thing at the end. So if you remove it, we are still part of the writing of that track because you can hear it with intending da 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 da
and and eventually you know we we came to um we came to an agreement i said oddly enough we're we're we are revisiting the, the, whether whether or not they've honourably obey, obeyed the terms of the sample of the license we gave them, but that's a um, uh, that's an example where you know there, there's um, if you're playing the game of ownership, which those corporations are, if you're playing the game of ownership, fine, it, 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 it's right and proper that King Crimson should get their share, and those um, the sampling world seems to be remarkably happy I, I think stupidly happy if i'm honest but to to simply go ahead steal it and worry about it later mm. um uh, you know if, if if you were managing kenya you'd have thought it'd be far more intelligent to ask us before you released it or even before you'd done it actually because if you'd come to us and said you know well we're thinking of doing this we might have been quite keen and quite nice and you know, to, to say, well, yes, we'd quite like to get it used. In other words, they, um, the, the boot would be slightly on the other foot. In other words, we, we would be keen to be involved as opposed to them. Um, whereas once they've gone and done it, actually they have no bargaining power whatsoever, which is bizarre. So in fact, they're entirely beholden on how nice do we feel. Mm -hmm. in, in, you know, when it comes to splitting up this track, it comes down to how nice do we feel. And in fact, we, in fact, fortunately, I think we have a very good sense of what is fair. And we were, we were very, you know, there were other samples involved and we were very keen that we weren't seen to take more than Kanye. So, um, I think they did very well out of us. But, um, there have been a couple of cases recently. There was a, um, I knew, I think there was a Flippinino track. There have been, been two or three cases recently where we've, after they've been released, we found, you know, somebody's taken us, taken something, sampled it, not not asked us about it. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, and part of that almost seems to come down to common courtesy. You think, well, we, we are we're undoubtedly more aggressive and more offended when we found about find out about them like that than we would be if people ask. Sure, sure. You know, you like. Know, I, th I think it's interesting that you know because like every every contract you sign in the music business um, very clearly states that you can only um, you know if you claim that something is yours, it has to be yours, and if it's not, yes. then it's the fault of the artist. Yes. So, so it's kind of it's kind of interesting because, in a way, the the big the, the the record companies sort of like give the blame to the artists. So really, they don't need to don't even need to police what is in what is in the music. They don't even need to know. Um, Sadly, I suspect they they will have blamed either Kanye or the producers. I'm sure for not telling them, you know, that there were samples that needed to be cleared. I imagine is what they will have done. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Whether whether that's actually what happened, um, I think Kanye maintained that in fact the record label had decided that it was slightly cool to release this surreptitiously early before anything had been done. I don't know the story, but the you're right. I think the the artist is always required to you know, or, or either the artist or the producer to commit to the fact that there are no un uncleared samples. And but it's remarkably common when. Um, 
Yeah, I, th- I think it was in the course of Crimson King that cropped up re- recently um, mm-hmm. on one. Um, so uh, that that goes on, and it, yes, it grates. Um, it grates, and it's sort of an annoyance because yeah, it would be it, nothing, almost nothing to do with ownership. It, it would seem like common decency to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, if Bach was alive and I wanted to use a bit of this, you know, you could write, you know, dear, do, 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 you, do you mind? Do you mind? I've just ri- I've written I've written a, a melody on top of your piece here. Do you mind if I use it, please? Yeah. <laughs> um. yeah. Hey, so David, how how did you get into all of this? All of this. I've always done all of this. This is all I've ever done. So, um, gosh. Um, I got into production because I because I refused to practice as a musician. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I became a conductor, not a particularly good conductor. So, I, so, so to begin with, I was, you know, I, I played instruments, and I think I played a lot of instruments for a year. I played the cello for a year and the French horn for a bit more than that. And I played the flute for a short while. I played a lot of instruments, and I was really quite interested in how they worked, as in getting to understand the instrument. And then when it got into the bit that you're probably good at. And that you know, um, real musicians are good at the, the. I'm now going to practice it until I can play it properly. I really wasn't interested. I like to understand the instruments enough that I could write for them and compose for them, and then I really couldn't be bothered. Mm-hmm. Um, and they gave up on me eventually. They said, "Well, obviously you, sh- you should be the conductor because you're <laughs> because you, because because you're reasonably musical. You know all these instruments, but you refuse to play any of them very well." So they, so I became a conductor, and. When you move into you know popular music, you're not a conductor anymore. You're a, you're a record producer. So um, so I think that's how, that's probably how I got into producing, um, and it's that really is well that and writing. I, I'm, I'm probably most most passionate about songwriting, but that, that's all I've ever done. And um, I was um, Robert's always ma- maintained that it was inevitable, probably that we would start working together as he's, he flatters me by saying that I was probably the best um, of my ilk kicking around in you know southern England at the time, and he was certainly one of the prime musicians, so probably it was inevitable that at some point or other we were going to meet and think that perhaps we'd like to work together. And um, uh, I, met, I met Robert in 1989, mm-hmm. and we got on, and I've worked on virtually everything he's done ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, so the f- the first first record was uh, Sunday all over the world or well so the the um, I actually first started on a guitar craft tour so I was actually in I was uh, producing a record in Tony Arnold's studio in Cranbourne and Robert phoned Tony because he'd been working with him saying he just fired his sound engineer halfway through a tour and did he know anyone who could come in at short notice to do front of house with the guitar craft. Mm-hmm. And Tony turned, I remember turning around saying, what are you doing in two weeks time? And I said, well, I'm free. And he said, well, do you fancy doing that then? So I said, yes. And um, I met with Robert and then flew out to Seattle and um, worked, uh, did the guitar craft call, tour. I have some very, very strange scores that one day I will have to show Bert or somebody because and all I had was on the way out. I've been. I was given a DAT tape of the of the of the set, mm-hmm. and um, 
I hear time signatures fairly different to a lot of guitar craft people. You know, I don't, I don't hear bars of 13. I probably hear a pulse as in I'll, I'll hear, you know, a four or four or three or whatever. So I, so I, so, so I, so I, wrote, I wrote the time, but I loosely, I scored the set. And of course the set was continuous. So I didn't even know where the pieces, I, I'm not even sure I had the pieces beginning and ending in the right places, you know, but I, I, I so I, but I, I mugged myself up a rough score. Okay, the music's roughly like this. This is roughly what it's going to be. And um, I then did the first show, and John Sinks, now sadly not with us, was beside me. Of course, knew the set inside out. And I can remember thinking, why is he not mixing this? Mm -hmm. he, he, he was sort of the assistant. You know, he set everything up. It was sadly, it was obviously just John wasn't, didn't have the whatever to, to say he could have done it, because I'm sure he could have done But anyway. I can remember sitting there, he knows all this really well. Why, 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 why am I mixing this, not him? Um, and um, Thrack was the interesting one, the, the version that the guitar craft used to play, because halfway through that, there was a big moment when you had to throw the reverb in, that big, big reverb moment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I duly banged it in on time. John looked and said, that's amazing. <laughs> you've, been, you've been counting all the sevens and fives and, you know, worked out that it arrives there. And I said, well, no, I haven't actually. I know the rhythm goes, da -da bash, you know. And, I, and I'd actually scored this entirely without a seven and a five going on against each other. So, um, but, um, which I repeated later on exactly the same thing with Baboom with Bill, uh, Bill Bruford. I edited that for him on Thrack. Mm -hmm. The same thing is true. He said, oh, the original version that they played, it was slightly too long. He said, David, we need to lose a bit of this. And I did an edit and said, oh, well, okay, we're going to go from there to there, chop that bit out. Mm -hmm. And he looked and said, that's perfect, David. You found the exact point where the, you know, the cycles are. And, and I said, well, actually, same thing. I just sort of, because it's the same thing. There were two cycles going on. And I said, no, but actually both times I was right for an obvious reason, but I'd heard it wrongly. As in, I, I had heard the two making a hybrid rhythm. And I said, well, hold on, you've got this rhythm going here and that rhythm going there. But I didn't have it as a rhythm of one type signature against another. I just... I'm an ordinary musician. I don't cope with things like that. I just have one time signature and I knew how it worked, you know. So, um, but anyway, I, I did the guitar craft court tour with Robert, um, came back to England and, uh, there was a, they'd fallen out with Tony Arnold halfway through recording the album. Uh, he and Toya really didn't see eye to eye. So although they'd recorded the backing tracks, they needed the vocals recording. And so I recorded them very strange. Tony Arnold's studio really didn't work without him because because nothing worked. You needed him to pick things to make it work. But he wasn't allowed in the building when I was engineering. So, so Toya came in and I, rec I recorded the vocals and you know, if something went wrong, Toya had to go and make herself absent when, and we had to get Tony back in again to kick whatever needed kicking to make it work and then we carried on again. Um, so we did that when really I was just an engineer for hire. Um, but we got on well, it worked well. So I then compiled frame by frame, then did The Great Deceiver, and um, and we set forth until when my third child was about to be born. I was living in France at the time. Mm -hmm. um, my, my wife would tell me I was living in France going to work on an aeroplane, which is not doesn't make wives happy. I think that would probably be the way. And um, so when my third child was going to be born, she said, David, you need to find a job when you come home at night. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, rather, rather than swanning off and having doing having great fun producing music, you know, anywhere else. Um, and Robert had talked about forming a record label, 
So I phoned him up and said, if you're serious about forming the record label, I'll come to England and we'll put a label together. Um, and that was 1993, which is when we started DGM. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and um, I suspect Robert might have seen what followed. I didn't. That's because I'm blind and I'm willfully blind, maybe. As in, you know, Robert might have guessed that we would still be doing it now had you asked him in 1993. If you asked me in 1993, I didn't realize that I was jumping into a long haul adventure. It was, it was just the obvious step. Mm -hmm. um, and, but, but ever since, actually, you know, it's remained the obvious step. So that's fine. Yeah, you just mentioned the uh, the Great Deceiver box set, which um, has been like I think like super inf influential on on me somehow. Not just because of the music, but because of the the presentation, like the idea to to take old recordings and to restore them, um, and and that was actually that, those were all multi tracks, I think, right? Yeah. So the the that was. That was in the same days when, yes, we were using multi-tracks and the, um, uh, I, talk about the studio that doesn't work. I can tell you that the great deceiver, um, we, when we first got that, we put up, I think the tapes for the first CD, which is Providence. And there was no bass drum, the bass drum track, track one was silent. Mm -hmm. And so we thought, what do I do? And it was in the days of very early computer software. Um, and so I tweaked all the other existing drum things so that you could vaguely hear a bass drum and use that to trigger a bass drum effectively. Mm -hmm. So I saw so I triggered a bass drum all the way through and made a bass drum trigger and thought, okay, now I've got it. Now I've got a big bass drum. Um, and, uh, took days to build because Bill doesn't play a sort of sensible bass. You've got tiny little rolls and things on the bass drum. Mm -hmm. So. Um, but when I first met Bill, I remember saying to him, funny to I should meet you now. I've never met you before, but I know a lot about your right foot or left foot, whichever foot it is. I know all about that. I spent ages listening to that. Um, anyway, after two days of doing this, um, I went downstairs to below where the tape machine is kept and discovered that Tony Arnold had unplugged track one. <laughs> I plugged it back in again. There was the bass drum. <laughs> um, so, um, Uh, but yes, we did. We did the Great Seaver, and the the bit that for me that was most fascinating, which is Robert, is that uh, it's utterly honest. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think it's on Providence. It, it, you, you when you finally get there to the huge climax, there's you know stars. It builds up. It builds up. It builds up. It returns to the big theme at the end, and there's a blindingly wonderful Ron bam bum note on it. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and. I know. Uh, and in a funny way, that note is partly why I think the whole thing is successful. It's an example of why it's so successful, because the fact that that note is there subliminally, I think, makes you realize that the whole thing is real. Mm -hmm. It hasn't been fixed. It is what it was. So therefore, all the wonderful things, such as the improvs, are also as they were. In other words, it's, this hasn't been, we've mixed it, but we haven't altered it in any way. What you are, what you are listening to is a is an honest picture. Yeah. Um, so um, I, I think I didn't realize then that my career would go in such an odd direction. I, I remember um, it might, might be in a royal package or something. Um, 
Rob, Robert introducing me as a, an expert in audio necrophilia. Mm-hmm. I, think that was the, I think that was the phrase he used. Um, uh, because, yes, we've moved on from, we then moved on from multitracks to the fact that you can, if you try hard enough, you can make some very strange cassettes sound very good if you're willing to spend the time. So, um, but, um, but, but actually that's partly because the shows are real. And if the shows are real and in the moment, then the recordings are valid. And that's why people like listening to them. It yeah, sort of comes back. So sort of, sort of for me as a young musician who didn't have money to, to, to have good gear at all, like still remember, like I, I used to have a Sony DAT machine that I recorded my first um, music on and that was good quality. But then like the yeah. first, first sound cards for my PC uh, yeah. sounded horrible. And then I, I sort of had to, and you know this really already was in the days when you were already talking about Sadie and using Sadie, I think. So and then like realizing, okay, there's this free piece of software called Cool Edit, uh, Cool Edit Pro or something, and it had had a, a denoiser function, right? So you could actually take a FFT file and kind of like, and it was um, it sort of became like my mode of working right like i i always had to work with with badly recorded material and and that sort of was i i thought was a really good 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 school kind of like to go through um as 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 a musician slash producer and uh you you were you were uh sort of like i mean i i was i was really like very much into uh into king crimson back then and i, I knew every single note on those records you know and but um, uh, well, um yeah Sadie, Sadie was interesting the i mean the early the stat audio standard of the early computer software because actually what we did um there was the very early what it was called pro tools i think there was the very early pro or sound designer there was the very early sound designer and Sadie came along and all we did with those but there were about three out three or four we looked at we simply put a piece of audio in and out five, five or six times. Mm-hmm. That's, how, that's what we did. We literally put it into the software, took it out again, put it back in, put it, same thing, put it in. And Sadie's one, you virtually couldn't tell when you AB'd your sixth generation one to your first generation one. You thought, oh, okay, this is, this is pretty faithful. The other ones were horrible, all of them. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. If you, when you put the, okay, I'll listen to number six against number one, you know, number six sounded like a, a modern MP3 or something, but, but you know, relative to the original. So th- this this was how we decided. So actually, Sadie didn't have the best functionality at the time, but we thought, well, like that sound-wise, that one is streets ahead of all the others. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and we carried on with that until I was it called Logic Emag? Yes, it was Logic, wasn't it? Until Emagic's version of Logic. Mm-hmm. I think it might be Logic 6, so I can't remember, what, I can't remember which was the very first. Like it was pro- prior to Apple buying, it went with maybe by eMagic. Um, and Eno rec- recommended that to us. So we carried on using Sadie, um, and then when we needed a multi-track editing, you know, slightly MIDI-based thing, uh, I think we asked Eno what he was using, and he suggested. Um, and so now, now I do everything in Logic. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, so when um, King Crimson um, 
started in 94. Um, did you guys record on ADAT or what were, was the... Like 90, okay, so Vroom, was Vroom on ADAT is a very good question. No, I don't think it was. I think that both the recordings in, certainly Thrack wasn't because Thrack was recorded at, re, at uh, Real World. And I'm fairly sure Vroom, now I'm, I don't think Vroom was, I think Vroom was recorded on tape. Mm -hmm. um, we had the ADATs by then, so we were using the ADATs and um, all of the other stuff. So all the live stuff was recorded on ADATs, the string quintet was recorded on ADATs, mm -hmm. um, Absent Lovers, Night, The Night Watch, all of those were done off ADAT. Um, so, um, but I think the album Vroom was probably done on tape. Um, and um, the, the only album that's on ADAT is the construction of light. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I was, I was, I was th thinking about the live, the live shows. How you captured the live shows? Shows are all on ADAT. They used to take out ten ADATs. They used to have two racks of five, so because they needed to change over because the sets were too long for a one-hour ADAT tape. So they, they had two, they had 10 ADAT machines, two racks of five. Um, and we still have, we haven't revisited them all, we occasionally do, but we've got pretty much all of the shows from 95 through till 2003 recorded on ADAT. Mm. Um, that's becoming a mixed blessing, because like all these formats, ironically, um, early tape is the one format that really has lasted really, really well. You know, you can go back to 1969 and transfer those tapes really easily. Um, if you go back to your early Sony DAT machine that you mentioned a little while ago, I suspect you may find those DATs don't necessarily transfer very well. DAT, DAT's been a dodgy format, and ADATs is a sort of a sometimes dodgy format. So, um, but we are we've been, we've been working on trying to get everything we think is really precious, you know, transferred off onto, onto hard drives now. But, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but, but Hey, so just just thinking back, like so, there were at least um, at least a couple or more major projects for you every year, right? Starting starting in the early nineties with like Sylvian Fripp. Uh, so I did, I did, yes. Yeah, so so Sylvian Fripp followed. When Sylvian? No, it happened before the string queen. I think whether it was might have even been in the middle of the string quintet. It was because it was ninety two. So, uh, so I, th I think actually it might have, um, I think we might have done frame by frame, begun the string quintet possibly, then done Sylvian Fripp, mm -hmm. and then, um, uh, then actually gone back and finished the, and done the string quintet again. I think it might have happened in the middle of that. Because um, I've, um, uh, Sylvian Fripp was my, uh, my only ever experience of, only ever experience? Yes, doing major live, Front of house sound was probably Sylvia Fripp. It's not something that I've I'd ever done before. I've worked in Thailand studios, um, and um, I got to know obviously got to know Richard Chadwick, who manages David and you know managed King Crimson for a while um, very well later. And I always told him that <laughs> I never thanked him for the phone because he phoned me up and. Um, said oh you know robert and david have decided to ask you if you do the sound do the sound engineer for their 
for the forthcoming tour in Japan. It was the very first one. And um, I said, fine, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm free and available. And he said, well, how, how much money do you want? And I had no idea what live sound was worth. Absolutely none. I'd never done it. And being a very cunning guy, he didn't give me any indication whatsoever, but wanted to know then. He said, well, I need to know now because I'm trying to do the budget. So, he didn't, so I wasn't able to sort of phone a friend and find out you know, what, what, what I should be asking. And um, we, were, um, we had no, like everybody early marriage, had absolutely no money. And I can't remember what figure I came up with, but it was so far wrong that he told me later that I was the worst paid person on the tour. And the sound engineer is always the best paid. <laughs> so, so I got the number completely wrong. And I pointed this out to Richard later, you bastard. You, you're in, anyway, but the, uh, uh, so um, that, yes. And the, I can remember doing that. And the, uh, it was a great challenge. And after about the third show, um, uh, I remember explaining to Robert, yes, I, I, this really isn't for me because now I don't know why I want to do tomorrow. As in, it was wonderful until I, um, once I'd done a fantastic show and got it so it sounded the way I really thought it should sound. And here it is, I've done that, I've cracked that. Oh, now I've got to make the same record that I made yesterday. I've got to make that same record again tomorrow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's a completely different way of thinking about the world, whereas previously, you know, if, you're, if you're in records, that's what you do. You've made it. Once you've made it, you're on to the next one. Whereas, oh, I have to do exactly the same thing tomorrow now, trying to be as good as I was yesterday, which is even less, less easy. But, uh, yeah, I, I, did the, I did the Sylvian Frip. Then we did the String Quintet. Um, then King Crimson started up. And, and then we were sort of always juggling two, two things at the same time because there were the various projects of the new King Crimson uh, you know, where, where it was, you know, the live albums when, did, when uh, well, we did the boom in 1995, for example. And also we did the series of, started the series of um, archive series. So effectively worked our way through Epitaph, The Night Watch, mm -hmm. Absent Lovers, Room Room. So, yeah, so those, those were very busy years. Um, and it, it's... And in fact, the, it, it, it alighted quite successfully because we did, the time we didn't control the main King Crimson catalogue, we just had the live material, which actually meant, which was very good because meant we focused probably more than you normally would have done, I suppose, on the live material, which is, um, and then in early to, in the early 2000s, the license from, uh, the main catalogue had been licensed to Virgin Records and that license expired and just to show how the mainstream industry doesn't, it never occurred to them we wouldn't renew it, interestingly. Mm -hmm. But when they did a license, I think I think to them they were the only, uh, major labels, I suppose, were the only game in town. And, and had we renewed, had we wanted to be in with a major label, we would in fairness have stayed where we were. It was perfectly fine. But, it, but it, when, they, when they did a 10-year license, it never occurred to them that, you know, anybody would say, well, thank you now, well, we'll have it back now, thank you. <laughs> um, so, so we got the main catalogue back and that's that's therefore enabled us to go through doing these box sets because to do those you obviously have to control the main the main studio albums so then so then that we started on the next lisa life which was going through doing the box sets and um we're doing exposure this year i don't think that's i think i think that's a secret that's already out there hopefully if it, if it is anyway but we're doing exposure this year which is wonderful mm -hmm. um and I think we have a plan for next year, but we're almost at the end of those, which is actually 
I, I find all these things exciting. I don't, I don't find it doesn't worry me. You know, uh, um, occasionally, um, Alex, Mr. Stormy Monday, you know, phones me up. I think slightly worried about David, aren't we getting near the end of this, whatever thing we're, we're doing? And I said, to him, well, Alex, if you look at the history of the last 20 years, the end of this is always the beginning of something else. So let's, <laughs> you know, yeah. I think I learned now not to be worried about the fact, you know, to be excited rather than worried about the fact that we're getting to the end of this. So I think, the, you know, when we do get to the end of the box sets, that'll free up a huge amount of time because they, they take about six months of the year not to do those box sets together. Um, so, um, hey, yeah. so let me, let me jump back a little um, to Thrak Attack. Oh, uh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's um, it's probably wrong to say this, but I think that the uh, the compilation of those improvs sort of opened the doors for the project somehow. Um, well, at least you know, to somebody who was listening from the outside, you know, having heard Thrack Attack, uh, the projects were really not a not a shock at all. Well, the, it, it changed it changed the way the band played, um, and I. Uh, it sounds terrible. I don't, that looking back, there are times when I can't remember which of Robert and I thought of something. Hopefully, because we're in step with each other, so probably we both thought of it both at the same time. Um, but I do remember coming back off a tour, and the idea being uh, because you know they used to play that short. It was only about three minutes, three and a half minutes. The improvisation in the middle of track. Well, what would an hour of that sound like? Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I, actually, I know that I, my idea of what that meant was different to Robert, but I, we had this thing, well, I wonder, what would an hour of that sound like? And you, and then basically I set about compiling it. And um, while I was doing it, I remember Robert had a friend visiting who came in and listened and Robert, I must have explained what David's trying to find bits from all over the place and put them together. So they, they make, they make sense. And, um, the, 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 the person asked him, well, how does David know what to do? Mm -hmm. And Robert said, because he has perfect taste. <laughs> and, um, I always remembered that because I thought at the time, that's how precarious the life of a record producer is because what Robert I know I don't know if it is Robert what, what Robert meant but one interpretation of what Robert meant said was that my taste coincides with Robert's taste mm -hmm. yes in other words um, you know my taste is perfect because it will be but because because it is it is purely down to you know where your where the news takes you and it was more interesting, in fact, when I did Attack a Thrack, which was the repeat, which was the revenge of Thrack Attack, which we did for the box set. Um, because having done it once, I knew how to do it, even though at the time it was difficult to believe it was going to happen again. Because all you can do with those improvisations is you, you listen to them all and you learn them. Mm -hmm. That's what you do. Effectively, you, you listen to them all. Sometimes I write tiny bits of scores. A lot of them I didn't actually write scores. I wrote my, I, I sort of gave them names. Mm -hmm. So I, I sort of had a, so, so I sort of got to know the texture of each of them. And I, oh, there, there's, oh yeah, that's that when he goes like that. There's that when he goes like that. There's that when he goes like that. And while you're doing that, you still have no idea how you're going to do this. Mm -hmm. And then there is a wonderful moment 
when it really becomes composition, just like any other composition. Begin, and then you, you get to the final note, and you sort of, oh, well, the next note is this note, which is that piece of music that comes over here. And somehow you, the music is now inside you enough that you can, you just slot them together. Mm -hmm. And, um, and in fact, I, I created them into, I changed the three minute bits into bits of about 10 minutes. And at the time, I imagined that there would then be gap. So I saw this thing as being a series of 10 minute pieces, mm -hmm. which is what I very first created. And Robert's idea was no, that it should be continu absolutely continuous. That was definitely came from Robert. So I then went back and worked out how I could then join these 10 minute pieces into, again, into a continuous piece. Um, and in fact, when I, when I did it on attacker track, I did it the other way around. And actually I made them into, because I put the, um, the main track theme back again. So on attacker track, they remain sort of 10 minute pieces. Instead of continuing, it goes back into the main theme and then continues on into another improvisation. Um, but um, so we anyway, we created these pieces and the most noticeable way that it changed the real world was that I noticed that in 1996, when the band went back out again, the improvisations in track, track were much longer. Mm -hmm. you know, so effectively, they'd listened to the longer form versions of thought, hey, these things don't have to be three minutes anymore. We can now do this. Um, so, so you're right, there is a slight, inevitably, a feedback loop between what you do and then what the band hear and how they play it next time. Um, so yes, and um, I, think the, I think the projects remain some of the most exciting music we've ever worked on. I'm, I'm uh, not all of it, you know, I mean, there, there are moments I'm sure, but, but as an as a overall thing, I think the work of the projects is one of the sort of undiscovered thing, I have secrets, I, I, I think they're fabulous. I, I agree. And I, I spoke with Trey the other day, and we we then uh, realized that it was only like maybe not even a two-year period, right, mm. for the projects. No, I think they went to 1998, so it would have been 97 and 98, I would think. Because 1999, they started the double duo, I think. So I think it was probably just those two years, 97 and 98. Yeah, uh, yeah. And some have remarkably few. So Project 4, I think, only played seven gigs or something. Yeah. Uh, one did just four nights at Jazz Cafe. Project 4 did about seven nights. Project 2 obviously gigged a lot. That was the one that did way the most gigs. And in fact, Project 3 didn't do that many. So it's... Um, But you, but you listen back to it and there's some absolutely fabulous stuff. Yeah. Uh, so and it comes back to the same thing about being in the moment. Somehow when music is absolute, when music is created, it remains present forever somehow. There's a, there's, when, you listen to, you know, where, when you listen to a recording of, that actually captures you know, the moment of creation in flight, or whatever it is, it, it, somehow you can hear that in the recordings. Yeah. That's so uh, in how far were you involved uh, in uh, in you know how how did it how did it come about do you still remember was was it uh, I wasn't I wasn't involved at that, that stage I sensibly um, uh, was as far away from the management of King Crimson as you could possibly be 
Mm-hmm. No, only an idiot would want to ma- manage a band. Trust me. Uh, the, the, um, it, it, I, I think it's come around. I, I wasn't even in the frame for it then, but it's come around. It came around about twice more, and both times I ducked as fast as I could possibly duck. You know the the. Um, uh, so no, the, the you know the projects was uh, Robert's baby to go and do. So in terms of the recordings and um, preparing them and the various releases. I was, I'm very happy sitting in the studio doing that, which is what I did. So, so at the time it was fine. I stayed at, I stayed at home. I carried on working in the studio. The band went away and toured like crazy, producing lots of wonderful music. Um, and I, and I helped make recordings of it. This was a very sensible uh, existence. So, so you, uh, were you at the jazz cafe for project one? Yes, in fact, I, I did the front of house for the jazz cafe. It was a new, so yeah, I did the front of house for that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was, I was there for two nights. Right. Um, yeah. And that, that was interesting because they refused, they refused to rehearse together, uh, to, to, to sound check together. They wanted it to be genuinely brand new. So when, when I did a sound check, I did everybody individually, but they never played a note together. The very first note they played together was the first note of the Pete of the, of the first show. Yeah, um, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, so fast forward like 14 years or something um, to the new King Crimson. Oh, where, yeah. where you you were not the manager at the beginning of that, right? No. So the, um, the, I was around, um, no, I, mean, I, I wasn't. I mean, I, I think I, I knew it was coming and uh, the, um, and the ideas were around. So obviously I was around talking to Robert when it was floating in the ether. Um, so the, and it, it, it partly came about as a result of uh, the band that John Wetton was going to put together. So I went, Robert had, if you remember, Robert had um, given up live performance at the time because uh, he felt it was impossible in the current commercial climate. So Robert wasn't playing live. I, I was. I went to Japan and I gave a gold disc to Steve Hackett, um, uh, and I remember thinking, "Hold on, you know, Steve Hackett's now got, getting gold discs playing playing Genesis, basically. His whole gen- it was his Genesis Revisited series." Mm-hmm. And I came back and said, suggested to Robert that if he wasn't going to play live, we should find a band that would in the same way that Steve Hackett was doing a legitimate band that would keep the music of King Crimson alive. And so we had a meeting at a DGM where with John Wetton, Mel Collins, Jacko, I don't know who was going to, I don't know if Gavin was going to drum. I don't know, I'm trying to think. But anyway, we, we, we spoke to John, but certainly it would have been Jacko, Mel, John, um, about, um, putting together a, a a band that I think, I think John was clean to call it Crimson DNA, I think. Um, so that band was discussed and we, we started discussing set lists. Interestingly, I remember sitting and saying, well, you know, John, we need to do this. And, you know, you, you, could be, you should be playing Starless and you could play, you know, whatever, all these pieces. And the following day, uh, Robert came back to, in the kitchen and said, well, do you know, David, I fancy playing some of that material. Um, <laughs> It, it wasn't that instant, but but instantly 
I'm sure in a way that was a seed because obviously when the new band did arrive, um, that's that was that was the way it went. It reinvented the old material. So so John John's band John's uh, the band with John didn't happen, but in fact you know a different band but without John uh, sort of morphed into the uh, band in 2014 and. Um, no, originally it was managed by Andy Leff, mm-hmm. and um, and I think Andy was the right person to get it together. He he managed um, Porcupine Tree, so he had an existing crew, and Robert had a you know relationship with Andy because um, because he'd uh, done soundscapes with uh, with them. And the the problem is that Andy isn't a details person, mm-hmm. really, and. Uh, there's a point at which King Crimson becomes very much a details operation. Mm-hmm. And so, so it sort of began to fall apart, sadly, partly over money, because actually I, I was just sitting looking at it from Robert's point of view, because I managed Robert's financial affairs, and Robert kept not being paid by the, for the, um, all his money from the first tour. And it was all to do with some form of, um, some problem in the way they tried to, that they filed the taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, in America, and um, and it became apparent that you know Andy wasn't going, you know wasn't going to be the person who was going to be able to sort those issues out. Um, and uh, I went up to see Robert, um, suggesting not, not realizing. I'm, I'm thinking, well, obviously he just needs to talk to Andy and get Andy to find some some way of solving this. Um, and um, came up to Robert and said, look, you know, there's this issue with this money. You know, you know, you need to talk to Andy and get someone to, you know, sort it out. And um, Andy, Robert basically phoned up Andy. And, uh, with, so rather than the conversation I'd imagined he had with Andy, basically, I think while I was there, Robert phoned up Andy and said, dear Andy, obviously not working out. So you're not the manager King King Grimson, David is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you may notice I didn't have time to duck in that conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so um, that's that's sort of how it, how, how it happened. Um, and you still do have to be mad. I, 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 I would define myself as lots of things. But one thing I won't define myself is, as a manager. It's because a manager is really a... Um, uh, it's not really a creative role. Mm-hmm. Not creative in the way I would like it to be creative anyway, as in artistically creative. It's really purely a, it's a cross between a, an accountant and a social worker. That's what you are, you're a manager. You're an accountant social worker. But also a problem solver, right? Problem solver. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a mixture of all those things. But you, so basically you deal with a lot of stuff all the time. Not creative stuff, just stuff, you know. Um, and, um, but, but it was, it, I'm sure... From the band's point of view, I think it was the right call because I seem to have managed okay, and I'm happy. I'm happy to have done it because it's kept the band going. This is the longest-lasting incarnation of King Crimson ever. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, so it was. A, it was a. It was a role I was able, able to fulfil, and I'm happy to fulfil it. But I still have no desire to be a manager, which probably, which is possibly why I'm a good manager or re- I, I shouldn't say I'm a good manager. It's not my job to say that. If I am a good manager, it's because I don't want to be one. There we are. That's the. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, but yes, it's been. 
it's been interesting and getting back full circle to where the conversation started with you know lockdown um you then have a band you know with um as with a lot of musicians with a whole year with no income mm -hmm. we have a we have a touring partnership we have a, there's a there's a king crimson partnership whose only income i mean the band have other income from elsewhere but you know that that, that partnership only earns income from touring and suddenly you have a year in which you have costs because you've been paying out on the assumption that a tour is going to happen. Yeah. You're paying out money and suddenly there is zero income. And when we file the accounts for that year, there will be absolutely no income. And no income from the government because governments don't seem to want to support artists. That doesn't seem to... You know. um, so, yeah. Um, and that's not a sob because actually, the, as I told all the members of the band early on, I think we're very privileged in that it's something we can cope with. Mm -hmm. Two years would be two years would be very difficult from the partnerships point of view. If we had a second, but actually, I said, you know, this is actually. I think we mostly have to think. No, we're compared to a ton of people in the world. We're really very lucky because yes, okay, I can I can put a plan together that has zero income this year, and provided we are able to tour. Well, this year as it now is coming up. Provided we're able to tour in this year, over the two-year period, we will come out. You know, we will come out fine. We won't make as much money as we would have made, but that's not the issue. We, we will, we will be fine. So, um, but it is amazing the amount of work you have to do not to do anything. As in, you know, to to, yeah. to arrange to arrange to postpone a tour and argue with insurance companies who would like to who would like to tell you that not only. Are they not going to pay out on the insurance? Because we, we pay huge amounts of money, I mean, probably oh, at least $100,000 a year to insure tours. Mm -hmm. And um, the insurance company would then like to tell you that they would like your money for the, for the tour of last year, but they will not like to pay out because they would like to say that there was an exemption they didn't tell you about at the time. So it doesn't want, they don't want to pay out on COVID because it was an act of God. But on the other hand, they do want us to pay the $100,000 fee for tour that never happened. No, it's like, uh, you know, um, after much persuasion and arm twisting, they did agree with me that I said, well, actually, as we've postponed the tour, I will pay you your $100,000 fee, but it has to apply to this year, as in the one that's about to happen, because it's really the same tour. You just moved the tour from last year to this year. But, but that is the stupidity. You, 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 there's, there is weeks of my life, in that, that simple sentence there, there is weeks of my life <laughs> arguing with arguing with you know insurance companies who are trying desperately to you know screw you over and uh, you know, um, to achieve nothing really that's the problem yes yeah, so you, you you do do a lot of work to stay still but um hopefully we will be i think july the 23rd we will be playing gigs in the u.s in on july the 23rd which you know seemed well, when we first moved it last year, we thought, well, that was definitely going to be okay because we left a whole year forward. From, and we thought, oh, that's bound to be okay, middle of 2021. How can that not be perfect? Mm -hmm. you know, earlier this year, we were twitching and thinking, oh, God, is July going to be all right? Um, right now, it looks better than it has done, I think, hopefully, but we, but we still don't know. Yeah. So. Yeah. So um, I have a. So the, the problem solving that you're doing in management. Right. Yeah. And like compared with the problem solving you did in Tony Arnold's studio, like replacing that kick drum, right? 
do you think that there's any like like what is what is your uh, what have you learned over the years and what are your strategies to solve these complex detailed problems um my only strategy is that i believe in being transparent and fair mm -hmm. that is my that probably that is my strategy and um it's surprising how often you're advised not to do that because quite rightly a lot of people will tell you that it will be perceived as a weakness mm -hmm. but particularly if you're dealing with hard-nosed people because i'm not trying so you either go in and you know you you you, you hide you know you keep your information close to your chest and you lob in some great big demand expecting it to be chipped down to something that you might have wanted to settle for in the first place. You can play that game. Generally, I don't like to do that. I tend to think I will be transparent and I will be fair. Um, I think the, the guitar craft model is probably assume the virtue. Mm -hmm. um, as in, I, I will approach this like this and I will challenge you to try and hopefully i would say right whatever but act, act act accordingly so usually i try to do that and, and it, uh, no there, there are genuine disagreements over things with people and it's not always very easy but um mostly that has worked very well and actually robert is helpful because he often chips in pointing that out when people don't see it you know as in david who's one of the fairest people i know so what if he thinks you know if, He is probably trying to offer you what, what, what is a fair deal, not just from our point of view, but for, for both of us. Mm -hmm. So I, ten, I tend to try and come in and say, okay, this is what I think is the fair solution. And there is, there is a danger because some people will regard that as being your starting bid and think, hey, great, we can now chip him down further. And then you have to say, no, I'm not, I'm not playing that game. I've told you mm -hmm. this is the beginning and the end. We've thought about this really hard we, we, and uh, we think that's fair. And the other strategy is actually that I was at university, I studied philosophy mm -hmm. and logic remains a very good tool um, for any of these sort of disputes because quite regularly what people are saying is, is illogical. Mm -hmm. And if, you're, if you can reduce it to a very, very simple argument, then it's obvious as in you know um you know this happened you said this you said we, we agreed this we agreed that we so therefore this and you what and what you're saying can't be right you know the, the, these points the, these points are indisputable so it has so the answer has to be the next one you can't so if you can reduce something and cut what you you know all the huge distractions you can actually just get it down to three or four key points so key points one two three four then five um those probably are there you are so um try and reduce things to very simple clear arguments and be transparent and fair would be the completely balmy david singleton guide to management <laughs> I, i think peter grant had an entirely alternative system he probably made more money than i did by the way <laughs> But you know, I was I was uh, going to ask how, where you find the motivation to actually fight those or to live through those arguments. But you, you, I think you gave the answer. It's your interest in in uh, 
playing well you are sort of also playing a game but on the level of reducing as you say the logic to the to the core um there are times when the the, the motivation is the toughest part because it isn't naturally what i would regard myself as doing mm-hmm. if you go back you know i i i i'm i'm here for music not for business bluntly if you want to simplify it i'm here for music not for business and obviously if you're in management you're in business really and so um so a lot of the time i am therefore doing something that you know when i get out of bed i don't leap out of bed and think hey today's a great day for having a dispute um <laughs> uh, or whatever but it's the stuff that he's doing i i i undertook to do the job and yes so, so you then just do it to the best of your ability i think you know it's what comes with it and um uh and i do like to try um hey, so, so uh, would, would would you say that it's an outlet for your creativity at this point in your life I don't know maybe I wonder if in retrospect I will decide it was several people have said to me that they think it is I don't see it like that yet mm-hmm. I think I think maybe Jack or several members of the band have said you're wrong you know that what you're doing is perfectly creative it's just um you know creative in a way that maybe I don't see it as mm-hmm. being mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't I don't know so maybe I will look back in later years and think oh well, actually no that was quite a you know quite a creative period um if nothing else i don't i don't know if you know them but i um write the uh, the vicar chronicles which are sort of um semi fictional uh who done it's based in the music industry um and it, if nothing else on a really depressing day i can always i can always amuse myself with well that's another very good story for, for the for, for the vicar <laughs> so yeah Hey, so is there going to be a song, song book two? There is, and oddly enough, the um, Jeremy Stacy, God bless him, seems to have taken on the role of being my pointed stick because the that's what you know the the price you pay for King Crimson management is that you don't make song book number two. Mm. But, but bluntly, you know, you know, there's only so, so much time in a day, and I'm already I'm continuing doing the most of the production role I was doing. So, you know, songbook number two has been the thing that has borne the brunt. And um Jeremy, God bless him, was obviously a fan of the vicar and he phones me up almost well, not daily, but certainly weekly or monthly, to say, David, you know, where is songbook number two? And you promised to send me a song and you haven't sent me one yet. Where is it? I want to hear it. And um uh oddly enough, I sent him one to I, I keep on not doing that and I got, got so embarrassed today that I thought well I'll send him the one of the demos I've been working on so I sent him the, a quick demo earlier on today and he phoned me back very sweetly and said well, this is wonderful he said, this you should you shouldn't be working on King Crimson this is what you should be doing mm-hmm. so um there's a man trying to talk his manager out of managing him which is wonderful so god bless Jeremy I say um but yes there will be a song book number two, and um there are oodles of songs for it the songwriting is easy the songwriting is what I do uh The arranging the arranging takes time and then finding people to sing them takes time but the songwriting is a pleasure and a joy and yeah um so um there will be a songbook number two wonderful 
Hey, so so the the song writing and the arrangement is is two completely different things for you. Uh, yes, and in fact, um, in some cases they're separated by twenty years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a um, there are a lot of songs that I wrote late twenties, early thirties, I think probably um, that I that I knew at the time were, I think, all, all, all artists have to be egotistical. So I think they're wonderful songs. They're fantastic songs. I, 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 there were songs I hugely believed in, but I couldn't work out what to do with them. I couldn't work out how to arrange them or how to present them to the world. You know, uh, the sort of a sort of, I, I, I've never particularly liked, you know, strummed acoustic guitar songs when, you know, it's obvious that's not what they should be. It's fine as a sort of an unplugged something, but I, I listen and thought, well, that's not what the song should be, or, or even me playing it on the piano. It's, it, and um, I had a lot of friends at college, in fact, who said, yeah, we, we used to think you were a great songwriter, but we had no idea what to play with you, what to do with your songs. Um, and in a, in a bizarre world, uh, the, the correct person to arrange those songs was me 20 or 30 years later. Mm-hmm. By which time, I had sort of the musical chops to realise. No, I, n- I I now know how to arrange those songs, and ironically, I don't know if I write the songs as well now because there's a, an innocence and a wonder in the writing of the songs. So actually, I, I I love some of the stuff that you know that that strange young man wrote then, but now I now I can arrange now I can do them justice <laughs> and arrange. Them. Um, uh, so. Um, and and they get they get they get rewritten. So I think the um, so although you know that they are new, but but I take the genesis of the song then and tweak it and make it into what it should be now. Um, you know, I, I I always think there's I always make the joke about a song. It's the same as the joke joke about the broom that there's no such thing as there's no such thing as a bad song. There's just a bad lyric, a bad melody, and a bad arrangement or a bad harmony or whatever. Mm-hmm. And all you have to do. You know, so if you so if you don't like one, you you you, you alter it, and, and then you've got a, and then it's a good song, uh, a bit like you know, the, my my broom is brand new. It's just I've changed the handle five times and the bottom ten times. So, um, so yeah, there's no such thing as a bad song. You just have to um, <laughs> change change all the bits that are bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. And how do songs come come to you? In which um, form? Is there like one way, or are there many? Um, The the melody and the lyric n- nearly always come together. Although I may well then tweak the lyric, well, or, or the melody, in fact. But I I tend to come up with a I tend to come up with a a melody and lyric together. Um, and whether the harmony comes first or afterwards, it's a bit of both. The some sometimes you know you'll be on a piano or a guitar and you'll you'll find a wonderful chord structure and, and the the harmony will suggest the lyric the, the melody to you, mm-hmm. but equally well other times I would I'll hear a melody in my head and then I've got to go and harmonize it. So happened a bit of both. Um, uh, I have written a few pieces that are not you know that are purely instrumental, um, but mostly I'm. Mostly, I just love writing. I love a perfectly turned song. 
I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of the craft of, you know, um, the craft of songwriting. Um, you can talk to me for hours about that. I'll, I'll do you enough. You know, but, you know, this is this is this is kind of like the stuff that I find very interesting. It's like like how do you do the things you do? You know, that's that's really um, uh, I have to say like like my main interest that even in, in other people in experts, right? Like say like you're an expert for you know yeah. audio restoration or finding finding takes that you know so that you can repair something and blah 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 and. And um, so now this idea of like you as a songwriter and like a melody and a lyric kind of like appearing at the same time. Um, what I'm sometimes wondering or what I would be interesting to me is like, do you think that the, your subconscious is kind of like working these things out and at some point they kind of like come to the surface or is there really something uh, there that sort of like simply appears out of thin air? I, 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 my, my sense of them, well, it's a bit of both. The, the, the beginning of a song is my sense is it comes out of thin air. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that my conscious, my subconscious, I suppose, hasn't been preparing something with my subconscious. I didn't know, mm -hmm. but, um, you will, I'm not going to now another day. I might, but I, you know, but I literally, sit there at a piano or something and I play something, I think, there it is, you know, there, mm -hmm. there it is. Mm -hmm. um, then, then, uh, then there is a point where it becomes work, pleasurable work, but there's, so there, there's, it's, it, it always happens in two stages, pretty much. There's the initial bit, however long the initial bit is, here's, here is a melody. Um, here's the first half of a melody. Here's the opening line of something. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's the, um, then there's the bit which is the craft of the songwriter, really, I think, which is the, you know, here's the answering phrase or here's the perfect middle eight. And this is, this is, this is where it should, this is where it should go. Um, and, um, and I think also, you know, you've written a lyric for a first verse, here's the second verse, because, um, there are so many songs really when you listen to them and actually the second verse really is just the same as the first verse as in it's the same idea I'm just tumbling over a few and sometimes that works very well and sometimes you think well it's you know it couldn't have been. Um, so there's so there's an initial thing that appears from somewhere and then there then there is craft I think then there is a it's a thing you do and you and um, you don't you have to wait on it sometimes I mean I don't I, I'm I'm a very patient songwriter. I don't demand, you know, having done the first bit, it's off. If I go somewhere else, it's possible that the middle bit that I then wrote would be quite hackneyed. If I just sort of said, oh, I need I need another middle bit. Well, okay, you know, Paul McCartney might have done this, or John Lennon might have, you know, somebody. I don't know. How do you think about it? Um, you have to go. You sort of once you've got the first bit, you then have to wait until the moment when you effectively have a fresh inspiration, and then then the perfect second bit presents itself. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I am, yeah, this is a, con if you want to do this again, I'll do it as a separate conversation because I will sit around and, you know, set myself up so I can play you something because that's actually what you need to do. But anyway, it's, um, uh, um, because then it's very, it's very obvious. 
Yes, you know, like the the question would be like if you have like your initial idea, um, whatever that idea is, and then, um, I I like does everything else in the song like come or follow that initial idea, or would you even have like separate ideas that merge? You know, like generally, I've always. I don't, I can't think of a single example. There probably is one somewhere, but right now I can't think of an example where I have simply, you know, merged two ideas. Mm -hmm. And the, the particular craft of songwriting that I like dislikes that. So although I enjoy a lot of 10cc, in terms of songwriters, I would argue I find them... Off, they often do that for me, as in, here's a bit, and now here's another bit, but actually the two bits don't really belong. They, they, they work fine, but you, you, you know, you've got bit A, and bit B is just following it, bit C is just following it. It's a very different style of songwriting. I think, by the way, I think they're probably the best people at doing that, but I think that is what, that's what I hear in a lot of 10cc songs. Um, uh, whereas I like to make it so that, no, it did organically, you know, this really did follow this, as opposed to... Um, Oh, I know. Probably the only example in Beatles land I can think of, A Day in the Life. A Day in the Life, the middle bit and the first bit are put together. They don't belong, well, they belong together because they put them together, actually. <laughs> but that is not a single songwriting moment that went from, you know, the glorious John Lennon bit to then I woke up, you know, got out of whatever it is, got out of bed in the middle. <laughs> um, uh, but actually, that's probably the only Beatles song where I can think of that I quickly off the top of my head that I do think that's true of, where where I, I I can hear a you know a completely different disconnect between the, the first part and the second part. Um, although they may well have you know it, so so the, so the rest of them the two of them gelled so well that it does feel to me like a single co you know a single cohesive idea. Yeah. Uh, you know you know the one of the reasons why I asked this question at this point is um, because I think we, we should sort of like wrap it up and what, you know, what yeah. would be better than kind of like returning to the beginning with the Bach piece where like one note leads to the other, right? And yes. it, it didn't surprise me. Your answer didn't surprise me. Um, also, like like knowing um, your music, um, um, mm. it, it didn't, it never sounded to me like it was something that was, you know, it always sounded like to, to me like this, this, You know, you start somewhere and you arrive somewhere. It's like this process music in a way, but very then very thoughtfully arranged, as you say. But it still sounds like process music to me. You know? No, it, 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 I, I don't. Yeah, um, and you're right. That's probably why I'm sure there's a reason why the the, the prelude structure because it is. It's one of those effortless. It's one of the most effortless things I've ever played. It literally is every note follows the previous one as if. It, yeah. But you know, it's it's true. I would I would say it's true for every every thing that Bach ever did. Like yeah. like uh, I I use um, or like use or utilize uh, Bach's music for my music theory teaching, and mm. and it's it's so fascinating to me. Like I can really get so excited about like analyzing. Bach in front of people, you know, like it's, it's the most, it's the most genius thing ever. And you don't even, yeah. you don't even need to hear it. Right. Mm. You, 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 you don't even have to have a sense of 
sound and you can enjoy what he's doing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, uh, so anyway, so I'm, I'm, I'm always here. That's wonderful. And, um, uh, yeah, pleasure, pleasure yes. just talking to you. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's, this is the longest we've ever talked to each other. <laughs> and I said, I, um, so maybe it's another thing. It's, if you go back also back to where we started, it's fascinating how for all of the, you know, the horror, the horribleness of lockdown, um, things have also happened. I, you, you presumably wouldn't have been doing blogs. You know, it, it's funny how, um, yes, we, we've, it, it's, it's opened. We don't yet like them and probably the, the windows or the doors it's opened are not those we'd have liked, but it has, it has opened doors as well as closed them. Yeah, it's, it certainly has. And I'm, I'm actually very, uh, I don't want to say I'm excited, but I'm, I'm really, uh, curious, curious what's going to come next. And mm. I think, I think it's, it's, it has sort of, uh, created this, um, quite forcefully the need, the need for change. And, uh, yeah, I, I think, I mean, for me, the timing couldn't be better. My, my daughter was born on first of the first of October, 2019. So oh, I, wow. I, I spent like almost every single second of her life with her. Right. That's astonishing. Actually the, the well, I, I, little bits of advice I can give you because I didn't, I said the, uh, when, when, if I go back to what I told you, you know, the, the, the first, what have been four years of my eldest son's life, I was, you know, going to, going to work on an airplane. Mm -hmm. um, uh, almost broke my heart, actually. I didn't know this at the time, but Inde told me much later that when he was three or four and he, you know, was playing in the garden and saw airplanes going overhead, he used to say, oh, look, there's daddy going to work. Oh, wow. Which was not something I like to hear. So I, I hadn't realized it was, I hadn't realized it was like that, as much like that as, you know, that was his, his impression of it. So, um, so yes, there's a blessing because you, because you don't get those, you don't get those, those days back again. Yes. Yeah. 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 And I've been, I've been trying to, uh, get my bookkeeping in order and I thought, okay, like now I have three months to do it. And, um, even after a year, it's not, <laughs> not in order. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, very good. No, so wonderful to talk to you, and yeah. um, let 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 me know what you're doing with it, and um, I'll put something up about it. I will. Thank you very much, David. Okay, good talk yeah. to you. Say hi to your family. I, I will. Bye. Bye. Bye.